Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Last Saturday, while I was attending a Christian festival in Ohio, a 21-year-old man entered a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, and murdered 22 people, injuring 24 more, making it the seventh deadliest shooting in modern U.S. history. What's so crazy about this is that walking into a huge store like Walmart and shooting a semi-automatic assault rifle and hitting 46 people is only seventh. Can you agree with me that we have a gun violence problem in America? Then, the next day, a 24-year-old man killed 10 people outside a bar in Dayton, Ohio, injuring 27 more. He used another semi-automatic assault rifle. What is the Christian response to all of this? Well, today, we are going to hear from two Christians who think it's time for Christ followers to lead the way in enacting and living out the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah to beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and our guns into mattocks. In fact, they're already doing just that. I went to see Shane Claiborne and Mike Martin on their Beating Guns tour when they came to New Haven, Connecticut, the same town as Yale University. I stood there outside the church watching as a woman whose life was traumatized by gun violence beat on a glowing hunk of metal that had once been a gun, confiscated by the police, and now was being transformed into an actual garden tool. As she brought the hammer down on the softened metal, she began weeping. As she continued hitting it harder and faster, she started wailing. Her pain was visible. I stood there watching as she took out her overwhelming personal loss on that piece of metal. It was cathartic, prophetic, and transformative. Now, I realize that gun violence is a hot-button issue in our culture today and that many of you listening to this own guns for a variety of purposes. I don't expect you to just change what you believe about guns after a single podcast episode, but I simply ask that you listen to these guys. Just listen and hear their case as they talk about this subject from a Christian perspective. Here now is Interview 54, Beating Guns with Shane Claiborne and Mike Martin. Well, welcome to Restitutio, Shane and Mike. I'm so glad to have you both on today. Uh, Maybe we could just start by telling us a little bit about the book, Beating Guns, and the tour you just got done with going from state to state and all over the place. Yeah, man. We did like 37 cities. It was an ambitious thing, but it was powerful. One pastor said every night we were given a Good Friday and an Easter sermon all at the same time. And that's, a, you know, for folks outside the church, that might not mean much, but we, you know, had together the life and resurrection hope and also the honoring the pain and trauma of uh, that people experience from gun violence. And every city was unique and dynamic and we're just kind of honored to be a vehicle for for both uh, honoring that hope uh, and the trauma and the pain. Yeah, Mike and I have been doing this for six or eight years, and uh, it's always a gift to be together. And this project's been a, been a holy project to do together. Very cool. So today we're talking about a hot button issue. Yet I'm convinced it's a it's an issue we need to talk about. We may be wrong about our view of guns. 
but we'll never know it until we think about it deeply and biblically and factually. So let's get into some of the points that you two make in the book. In particular, I was really floored by the gun facts on page 41. Got it here. I'll just read a couple here. The United States has about 5% of the world's population, but we have almost half of the world's privately held guns. Um, one Black Friday, 200,000 guns were sold in the U.S. That means two per second. Uh, or this one, there are nearly five times more licensed gun dealers in America than there are McDonald's restaurants. <laughs> that one in particular just blew my mind. My context is up in upstate New York where there's not much of a gun culture. But this issue is very much alive and in people's thoughts. If you don't mind, just start by telling me a little bit about why in the world is America in this state where we have so many guns? What's the history behind this? Uh, what can you tell as far as your research into the subject? It is stunning as you, as you look at the stats. And particularly, I think, the fact that we you know, manufacture guns at this just mind-boggling rate. You know, nine and a half million guns a year, 25, actually 26,000 guns a day, 18 guns a minute, one gun every three seconds. I mean, is that wild? So the kind of the, one of the things we looked at in the book is how we created this gun market really. And I mean, because the gun economy started as a war economy, but it made it really hard to sustain because you had these catastrophic swells in the need of guns when there was a war and then that would tank and you'd have these kind of this really unstable economy. Uh, you can't live off the war business is what they found because you would build up your capacity to produce weapons and then all of a sudden no one would need them. And so that's what they had to create is a society that needed guns. It felt like every person needs a gun, you know, and I grew up with guns. So I didn't really think that deeply about it. But as we started researching, you see how what is uniquely American is the creation of a population that feels like they need to be fully armed. And of course, it's even written into the Constitution and, and things like that. And we can talk about all that. You know, there's a lot that, that got us to the point where we are at now. But what, what's, uh, one thing I want to say that's really important is that two-thirds of Americans live without guns. So only a third of Americans have guns. And what that means is that some people have a lot of guns because yes. we have more, more guns than people in our country. And yet those are owned by a third of our country. You know, we're not out just to challenge folks who have guns for, you know, hunting or to keep a coyote off their farm or something like that. But what we're asking is, could we do a better job at, prote at protecting life? Um, and the fact is that not only do we have a lot of guns, but we lead the world, the industrialized world in gun deaths. Um, over a hundred people a day lose their lives to guns. And, you know, in the last 38,000 a year, that number hasn't dropped, you know, below 30,000 in decades. And so what that means is we're losing more people uh, domestically to guns than in all of the wars in, in our history. We're losing so many lives. And it's the number one cause of death of military service members is not combat, but it's suicide by their own guns. Uh, wow. Police officers are the number one cause of death is guns. Um, the number one cause of death of African-American children dying um, is guns. It's number two for all of our children. So really the question, where can we do a better job 
at protecting life. We, we're not going to be able to save all lives, but we, we certainly think we can do better than 105 lives a day being lost to guns. It's unprecedented anywhere else yeah. in the industrialized world. Yeah. Before we uh, turn over to Mike, I, I just wanted to make a point that just struck me. You would think America, I mean, assuming you didn't know anything about our country and its history and everything, you would assume that America must have a very weak military and we must be constantly under threat of invasion for so many people to have so many guns. I mean, we, like you said, have more guns than people. I mean, it is an interesting and unusual place when we compare the United States to other countries in the world on this, this issue. Uh, Mike, did you want to add anything in there? Mentioning the other, how different America is compared to the rest of the world in this gun problem, we just had a TV crew, uh, documentary crew come from Germany to do uh, a little story on raw tools, and they mentioned that they're kind of like an infotainment company, so they, they tell interesting stories, and they don't do anything political. And so then I asked, well, why are you talking, why are you visiting us? We're raw tools. We, this is a, a gun violence Peace and says, well, in Germany, it's not even it's not even close to uh, the political spectrum for them because they don't own as many guns. And if you want to own a gun, you have to go through a pretty strict process to get one. And so I think sometimes we can really get stuck in our American bubble compared to the rest of the world. That the other countries that have similar rates of gun ownership are really the countries like you just described that were under constant threat from not just outside governments, but, our, but their own governments, and that they've turned, uh, they've lost all trust in, in whatever kind of law enforcement or government that is, that is there. So it is, it is definitely a, a unique American problem that we have here. And back to your first question too, you know, how did we get here? I think, especially from a Christian perspective, that it's taken us till 100 people per day to die before we start hearing these organizations like Raw Tools or this book or Moms Demand Action or Every Town or the students from Parkland are going out and doing something about it because it it seems like that 90 a day or 100 a day is kind of where people are starting to draw the line that we need to take some action and do something. And from Raw Tools' perspective, it's the church has waited way too long to to take action as well. Yeah, it seems like there is a tipping point for a lot of people, especially in the culture that wasn't really there as strongly in the 90s as, you know, the 2000, the 20 teens. So that today it is really become more of a forefront issue because we're all kind of like equally horrified by this situation with the school shootings and these other mass shootings. Most of uh, the listeners to this show are Bible-believing people. Uh, They aren't going to be swayed so much by current events as by what their understanding of Scripture is. Uh, Could you build for us to just maybe take some turns and and work in some of the material you have towards the back of the book? A biblical case for Christians in particular, not the United States per se, but Christians embracing a sort of nonviolent perspective on life. What would be like some key verses or ways of thinking about this issue from a Christian perspective? Absolutely. And, and for me, that that's, goes to the very heart of this is, uh, you know, there's, there's folks that say that the gun violence is not a, a gun problem. It's a heart problem. And what Mike and I say uh, and can't say enough is that 
it is both a gun problem and a heart problem. Right. And God heals hearts, but people change laws in order to protect life, do a better job at protecting life. And so we kind of need to think in, not in these binaries that this is an either or, but you know, we can have great gun laws and still have people that are really violent in their hearts or really racist. And, and you can turn anything into a weapon if you want to. You can drive a car into a crowd. You can turn a pressure cooker into a bomb, as we saw in Boston. But the fact is that guns are uniquely made, you know, and they build the capacity to take life. And uh, unlike uh, anything else, especially things like assault rifles, which are designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And that's why they're often the weapon of choice in mass shootings. So some of the questions that we like to raise are, you know, should there be a limit to the capacity of legal guns to maybe like shoot 10 rounds before reloading is, is a limit, just like we don't have grenades on the street. Should we actually have weapons of war legal on our streets? So as we were touring together, Mike and I, uh, the New Zealand tragedy happened, right? Uh, right? The massacre there. And what we saw immediately was a country rise to the occasion to speak out against the heart problem. And they spoke against hatred and racism, Islamophobia, uh, because the Muslims were targeted in that attack that took dozens of lives. But then they also addressed the policy problem and changed the way that they allow assault rifles in their country and so that you know it kind of raises a good question for that's kind of what leadership can look like right and and i think for us just one more thing before mike has a whole lot to say on this too because he is i think first a pastor and second a blacksmith you know but we've thought a lot about this and we as we think of the gun and the cross uh, they give two very different versions of what power looks like one of them says, I'm willing to die, and the other says, I'm willing to kill. And for those of us that love Jesus, I think we really have to ask questions about violence and how we interact in a violent world. And we see Jesus on the cross showing us exactly how to do that without mirroring that violence. So, you know, Jesus's teaching consistently challenges the ideology of stand your ground and of many like kind of gun extremists in, in our country. And so when you look at the cross, I think it, we, it's hard to hold a cross in one hand and a gun in the other. And yet it's the human instinct, right? Even Peter, uh, Jesus's disciple picks up a weapon to protect Jesus, but it's so important how Jesus responds. He scolds Peter and he says, no, put that away. If you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. And he heals the man that Peter wounded. And when the early Christians interpreted that, they saw it crystal clear. They said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us. Because if ever there was a case to be made for justified violence or redemptive violence, Peter had the strongest case in the world. He was trying to protect Jesus. And Jesus shows us, you know, another way. So there's a lot more, I think, to unpack about the spiritual problem. Um, and how we're kind of shaped more by fear than by love. And guns are kind of uh, one manifestation of, the, of, of that culture that's so held captive by fear. But I want to stop and, and you know, hear from Mike because he's got a lot to say on this too. It does a lot of beautiful work around uh, faith-based uh, restorative justice. Yeah, I think there's such a, a great spot to build out is when Jesus rebukes Peter for and, and puts that ear back on the soldier. From there, I think we can realize that 
every one of us has the capacity to hurt another person and that if we continue to put more and more violent tools in our hands, then that capacity to hurt just gets bigger and bigger and exponentially grows so that we can go from one bullet to a hundred in a minute. And um, one of the things we talk about in the book is that it's easy to get stuck into this. It's a gun problem or a heart problem. And we really give a message that it's both of those problems um, that we are different with a gun in our hand than we are with a, a cross figuratively. We're different. Uh, the gun is different with us holding it. There's so many different things that become possible when we're there. But if we're not careful about the triggers in our hearts as well as the triggers in our streets, then we start to get further and further away of Jesus's call to nonviolence and to loving our neighbor as ourself. And at every point when we see the call to turn swords into plowshares and kind of Jesus's way of living out a nonviolent life, we see somebody who is continually with people in the margins, but also selfless, always going out and, and meeting other people's needs. And he's not taking guns with him. He's not taking swords with him. Um, he's, he's taking what he has uh, on his back and he's really empowering people, lifting people up. And when you put a gun in your hand, it's really an expression of power over somebody in that moment uh, or something. And I think that's that's the difference between carrying the cross and carrying a gun is that there is nothing empowering to the other person when you're pointing a gun at them. Um, and it, there's something about the resurrection that uh, if we believe that people are as bad as the worst part of their life, then we're denying that they can't be redeemed. We're denying that opportunity to them if we want to take uh, kind of the power of God, the power of life and death and impose that on them. So there's so many great lessons that Jesus teaches us about loving our neighbor, loving our enemies. And then the Pharisees always come back and ask, well, who is my neighbor really? And, and he takes it even further to say that it's also your enemy, that they're just as important as your father who just passed away and you still want to bury him. So when we think about following Jesus, and owning guns, it gets more and more complicated uh, when we try and connect those two. There's a lot of dissonance between those two. And like we said, we're not going after hunters or anything like that. Um, but when we start pointing guns at each other, then we've got a, a real disconnect with the message of Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And for me too, as a, also a pastor, I, I really struggle to judge people outside the church because they just have a whole different worldview. They're coming from a different perspective. I think there are certain things that need to be there in order for us to all get along with each other. But, you know, my purview, my focus is is much more on Christians. And I, I think I heard or read one of you guys say that if Christians got rid of their guns in America, it would it would have probably the most significant impact on the country in general because many or maybe even most of the gun owners are self-identifying as Christians. So that's why I'm interested in, in this biblical case and this, not just an example of Jesus, but even his teachings, like the Sermon on the Mount, that I think a lot of us look at, look at the teachings of Jesus and we say, oh, well, that's a general principle, but there's got to be some exceptions, or maybe his teaching just shows us how pathetic we are, that we would never live up to his standards. Thank God for the cross. But, uh, you know, maybe you guys could speak about that a little bit because you're really embodying a heart here in this book that is much more taking his words at face value and saying, you know what, we're just going to do, we're just going to do what he said. Yeah. So one of the things that is stunning as we did the research for beating guns is that Christians own guns uh, at a higher rate than the general population. 
uh, in particular, white evangelical Christians, uh, you know, in particular, uh, are the highest gun owning demographic in, in America. And like uh, on our tour, we carried with us a Bible case that's one of the top selling Bible covers in the country. And as you open it up, it's actually a, a gun case and yeah. it says Holy Bible on the front with a cross, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a gun carrying case and it's designed and marketed to Christians to conceal guns and carry them to church and other public places. And we have pastors that are saying, bring guns to church, you know, mm-hmm. so gun violence is a political crisis, but it is also a spiritual crisis and a moral crisis uh, in the church. And we like to talk about being pro-life, but sometimes we have so narrowly focused that, um, just on one issue on abortion, that we would be more accurate when we talk about pro-life to say we're anti-abortion or pro-birth because right. we're not consistently pro-life. And the, the irony is that you can say that you're pro-life in America and still be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-war, <laughs> and say that you're pro-life. What we need is a movement of Christians that are consistently pro-life. Right. From womb to tomb. And it, see that abortion is an important issue, reducing, eliminating abortion, but uh, that's not the only life issue. And gun violence, when we are losing 100 lives a day, every one of those lives is created in the image of God. This is a, is a spiritual thing. And, and so when we think of um, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, I mean, we should be the champions of life in the world. And the fact is, on guns and the death penalty, Christians have actually been more on the side of death than on the side of life. We've been more the obstacle to, I think, some changes that would save lives uh, rather than the, the people on the front lines advocating for that. So, so important that, to think about how we can be more consistent and do the deep theological work, too. I think that there, there's a lot of idolatry that we talk about in the book that we have, yeah. in, in a sense, made an idols out of our guns. And we think of the things that they promise, self-determination, security. And we, you know, the Bible is really clear that uh, some may trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in God as our deliverer. And, and, and really, you, you have to go, can we say that we're pro-life and be unquestionably pro-guns? You know, can we follow Jesus who said, love our enemies and simultaneously prepare to kill them? Yeah. Do you think when Jesus said, love your enemies, that that should apply, not for everyone, obviously, but for those who follow Jesus, that that should apply across the board? Yeah, I think there's a high percentage. You say across the board as like 100%. And I'm, I think we should, that should always be our goal. But there's clearly some relationships of uh, abuse and things like that, where that's, that's just not appropriate. And so we're not asking people who to stick with their abusers or anything like that. But we are telling people that the people who we see as our, our enemy isn't often actually abusing us, but might be just someone in competition with us. It can also be our neighbor. 65% of home break-ins are people we know. That kind of follows along with domestic violence as well. That if we would reinvest in our neighbors, if we want to love our neighbor and our enemy, oftentimes those are all the same people. And that if we invest in that two square miles around our house, and sow our ground instead of stand our ground, uh, we can make a whole lot of difference in recognizing the underlying issues that are causing gun violence. Because gun violence speaks from a whole lot of these intersections in our community, whether that's gang violence or suicide or domestic violence, and a a whole host of other issues like hate crimes or just accidental shootings where kids find a gun in someone's purse because they're using it to protect themselves, but the kids find it and accidentally shoot each other. That happens 10 times a day. So I think there's 
a lot to be said about how we love our enemy really means how do we love our neighborhood and the people that we come in contact with that we're ready to welcome them with open arms instead of bearing arms. And that I think really takes on a different kind of preparation and deep study and what Jesus calls us to be in our neighborhoods uh, to the people on either side of us, people who live next door, but also the people we go to church with, the people we go to school with, the people we go to work with. Our community grows at all those places. And Jesus calls us to interact and be present. We can't ignore the people next to us just because we disagree with them. Yeah. Now, what about all the violence violence in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament? You know, you've got David, for example, who blessed the Lord, who trains my hands for war. Uh, Isn't that biblical support for weapons? What do you think about that? I'm a part of a movement we call Red Letter Christians, you know, and, and we call it that because there's the... The, the old Bibles have the words of Jesus, uh, you know, highlighted in red. And the whole Bible, I think, is, is so important. It's the, the Word of God, and yet Jesus is the lens through which we can interpret it and understand it. And Jesus is a lens through which we interpret the world that we live in and, and think, like, what, what does it look like to live in, in this world that is not BC, you know, but is actually we're living in light of Christ. We're reading the Bible in light of Christ. And when scriptures feel like they're in conflict with each other, Jesus is the referee. Jesus is kind of the sounding board, right? Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of things in the Hebrew scripture that I really wrestle with. There's a ton of violence there. And yet I think that the trajectory of, of that story culminates, uh, the, the pinnacle of that is, is Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection. And, and so we look at that and we say, here's Jesus exposing violence, enduring violence, absorbing all the violence that we are capable of and showing us how to transcend it and heal it with love, even to the point that he's forgiving those who are killing him. So we look at the cross as our guide, I think, for how to live in a violent world. And we see a God who um, interacts with violence without mirroring that violence. Um, and, but it, that's, I don't think that it's any different. Like one of the first heresies of the church was Marcionism. So it was saying that the God that we see in Jesus is different and better and other than the Old Testament God. You know, between the Old Testament and New Testament, God went through anger management or God got born (laughs) again. You know, God got born again before the New Testament. But that was deemed a heresy. But it's interesting that the early church, the first Christians were, they were having this same conversation and they were trying to reconcile so many things that seemed different. So, So I think Jesus becomes really central to that. And that's why, you know, at the end of the day, Jesus becomes our example in how to live in a violent world. Um, And it becomes really difficult to justify violence (laughs) with Jesus. That's why many people interpret Jesus in light of the Old Testament or in light of something that they, I I think, misinterpret from Paul in order to justify violence. So there's some really bad theology out there, and we try to challenge that in our book. Uh, Mike, did you want to add to that? Just to mention, you know, there's some great biblical interpretation tradition within Jewish tradition, um, Midrash, and just continually interpreting those scriptures over and over again, always coming to question, never um, settling on one. This is the interpretation of this scripture for all time, um, but always revisiting those. When you look at a lot of the Jewish tradition and interpreting their scriptures, you find that uh, these stories of violence are really de-escalations of violence. 
that you see that at one time, you know, they might have wiped out an entire country, but this time God tells them, you know, just just this city or just this town. So it's this work towards this de-escalation. And then also you see Jesus saying, you know, you've heard it said, but I say it to you. So when Jesus is fulfilling the law of the Old Testament, he is reinterpreting it for them in real time there that, you know, you've heard it said to do an eye for an eye, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. And we have to take that moment seriously. And that's not to just be passive and and run away from from all hard confrontation, but to stand there with your accuser and make them look look you in the eye and really mirror for them the violence that they're trying to transact there to show if they can't see it for themselves and everybody else witnessing it sees the violence that they are using for their oppression. And and if you are a victim of that violence, um, at least you did not look like that. And that's what Jesus gives us on the cross. Yeah. So what, what I hear you saying then is that Jesus changed things and that, you know, maybe we have glimpses or improvements before that from what was there before, but really this culminates with Christ where he elevates us to a, a new standard. Is that fair to say? Yeah. One other example of that is is one of the most memorized verses in the world is uh, even for folks that don't consider them Christians, if you ask them, what, do you know one Bible verse? It's often an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right. So it's this idea of retaliation. And it's actually the ancient law is called lex talionis. It's where we get the idea of retaliation from. But we've misinterpreted it. And I did a lot of work with that in my, my book on the death penalty, because what we've used it is a license for revenge. And it was actually to de-escalate. It was saying you can do reciprocal harm, but you can't harm someone any more than they've harmed you, right? So you could take their eye out if they cost you your eye. Uh, It's kind of a tick for attack kind of justice, right? So it was one way of understanding it, but it was meant to de-escalate. And that's why Jesus is so beautiful when he challenges it. And he says, you've heard it said, Moses told you this, like Mike said, you know, um, but I tell you this, and he's going to show us the fulfillment of that. So I believe, you know, Jesus is not the negation, but the fulfillment of the old law. And so he's going to say, you may have a right to do that, but that doesn't mean it's right. You know, we can do better than mirroring violence. And, and in most things, we know that, you know, if you poke my eye out, I wouldn't poke your eye out. You know, I, we can do better than emulating evil. You know, like we, we don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong. Um, but somehow with capital punishment, we still use that justification to say, we're going to kill those who kill to show that killing is wrong. And I think that Jesus is challenging that idea that violence can heal our violence, yeah. whether it's capital punishment or guns. The idea that you know more guns are going to solve our gun problem or more violence through execution is going to de-escalate violence in the world is crazy. It's just like you know adding more fuel to the fire. It creates more... Uh, new victims and more wounds and exacerbates that kind of, uh, you know, just kind of extends the trauma. So um, violence is the problem, not the solution. Yeah. Another scripture that comes up a lot is where the soldiers come to John the Baptist. You've probably read that one before. And uh, John the Baptist doesn't say, hey, quit the army. He says, basically, be an honest, good soldier. And so people are looking at that and they're like, oh, well, yeah, the Bible's not against weapons and violence. It's just saying do it in an honest way. I I suppose that would fall into the same category as this BC mindset, you know, the before Christ, because John the Baptist is likewise before Christ came and and taught us a new way. So I won't won't really get into that with you guys, but I I do want to ask about the time when 
Jesus was about to be arrested and he told his disciples to grab a sword or there were, I guess they had two swords there. And obviously they didn't have guns then. So that's roughly an equivalent, I guess, you know, a, a personal weapon. So what's your take on Luke 22 and that, that whole account? I'll start and then Mike can bring it home. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, first of all, the John the Baptist thing I think is important. First, that when we're talking about soldiers in the first century, it's a very different context than our current one where soldiers, like the, mili- the Roman military was not just a war force. They were building infrastructure and aqueducts and roads. They were doing everything in kind of the, the society. And so um, the debate in the early church was not about whether or not you could remain in the military. You could remain in the military as long as every Christian soldier committed not to kill. And that was crystal clear, was that you cannot, you you could be in the military, but you couldn't be in a combative force. You couldn't kill in the military. And that was kind of like more reasonable commitment when the military was responsible for so many other things, right? But you won't see a Christian for the first 300 years justifying killing in any form at all, right? They were so consistently against violence. And I, I love the, the other scripture that you're, you're speaking to, because my take on that is that Jesus had many violent revolutionaries that were leaning in. In fact, Peter himself picked up the sword. So there are zealots and folks that thought that Jesus was coming to violently overthrow Rome and set up a new empire. The kingdom of God would come through force. And so I think what Jesus is doing is literally airing the dirty laundry and saying, there are some here who have swords. And if you have swords, bring them out. And he's getting that out there. But what happens right after that is the disarming of Peter. Peter actually right. uses one of those swords. And those would be the same swords, swords that he brought. Right. right. And, and I mean, the idea that, and when he says that that's enough, he's not saying that though, that's enough of an arsenal. He's saying that that phrase is used over and over. And he's saying enough, you, you're not getting it enough of this. He's calling that out. So, I mean, the, the idea that they are going to actually arm themselves to fight the Roman military <laughs> Is a, is a pretty big stretch, you know, but what it's also is an absolute contradiction of everything else Jesus said. If we actually believe that we should interpret that to say that Christians should carry weapons, because when Jesus goes before the authorities and he's being convicted of insurrection and rising up, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would have armed themselves. They would have fought. So he's making it really clear, I think, that this is not uh, about violence. It's about love. Yeah, some also uh, interpret Luke 22 as another fulfillment of Jesus um, from Isaiah 53, where he'll be numbered with the transgressors. Yeah. And, and up until that point, you don't hear about the di- disciples carrying swords. And so in one way, it labels you a transgressor to be carrying a weapon like a sword then. And so that's, that's one way to look at it. But also um, in the same way Shane was talking about, you know, one of the great interpretations that I like of not so much Judas was betraying Jesus, because this is all happening at the same time that Jesus is telling them to get swords as Judas is, is kind of gathering this crowd. One of the interpretations is that Judas handed Jesus over to them, as in Judas was one of these revolutionaries is like, Jesus just needs to be like given this moment to be that revolutionary for us. And, and a lot of folks feel like that's, that was Judas's moments to like set up Jesus to really take it to the Roman army there in Jerusalem. And 
Um, it just didn't happen. And we see that over and over again, too, with Jesus, with his temptations in the desert, that all of these earthly things, or all of these man-made empires, the principalities and powers are given to him. He has those opportunities, but he doesn't choose them. And I think that should go a long way in how we choose to follow Jesus, that we have all these other opportunities to make influence and to build power. But over and over again, Jesus continually shows us how to lift each other up and empower each other together and never as an individual power over somebody else or another group of people. Yeah, I think you make a good point about that, Isaiah 53, because uh, right in the, the text, uh, Luke twenty two thirty seven, Jesus says to them, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has his fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. I mean, it's, it's just right there. I mean, we're not going to another chapter or far away to, to squeeze two verses together that, I mean, they are literally back to back. And so it could very well be that Jesus is very consciously trying to fulfill this scripture and they're playing the part of transgressors, <laughs> which is a little weird. But considering how Peter then used that sword later, and really went against what Jesus needed to do. It does seem to line up. So thank you for that. Uh, what, what else would you say as far as just like common sense objections? Let's say a lady, a Christian lady is afraid to get attacked, and so she wants to carry a handgun in her purse, and she, maybe she lives in a rough neighborhood and wants that for protection. You know, how would you talk to somebody like that? Raw Tools was started through the lens of restorative justice. And I sat in on a, a restorative justice process where a student brought a knife to school, a female student, and she had kind of a, a rough walk to school. And her parents had actually given her permission to carry this knife okay. um, to defend herself on the way to school. And I think this would be true for this whole conversation is true, whether it's a knife or a gun, um, that once she brought it to school and along her along her way, she's endangering herself just having that present, um, as well as it's in her backpack all day at school throughout uh, until she goes home, and then who knows where it goes from there. The truth is that we're all less safe when guns are in our homes. Guns are more likely to be used against us or someone we love or someone who lives in that home than they're ever to be used to defend yourself against an intruder or someone attacking you uh, on your way to work. The truth is when someone wants to break into your house, they don't want you to be there. Um, and they often don't carry a gun themselves. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different laws that escalate your consequences if you for armed robbery rather than just breaking and entering. And they know they're aware of that. And so they don't want to be put in a position where they have to harm somebody. They just want to get some sort of resource to make some money. You know, I've been into in small groups where it's single women saying, well, what do I do instead? And uh, we have to let them know that, you know, running is a good option. Whistles are a good option. Um, mace even is a de-escalation of, of force there. That there's a lot of other ways, walk-in groups, things like that. There's a way to empower each other to deal with these real, real world fears um, but also just to be known that we can't let that fear dictate how we make our decisions, that the love of our neighbor in our, in our neighborhood and our enemy also needs to play into how we decide to live our life in those spaces in between. So that's our space between home and work and school, that as we go, we are safe and we take care of each other. There's a lot of tangible ways to combat this fear of, of that kind of, you know, someone following me to my car or knocking down my door in the middle of the night. Whatever that fear is, 
there's a lot of underlying issues. And if Christians would be better at being Christians before all of that stuff happens, then we don't have to have this conversation about gun violence if we love our neighbors as Christ told us to. Shane, you want to add to that? Sure. Yeah. I, so this idea that, you know, a gun will protect me is, is a really important thing to dig a little deeper on. And that's why we, we go into a lot of into that idea and in, in beating guns in our book. The fact is that the studies overwhelmingly show that there's all kinds of things that are actually as effective or more effective than a gun in protecting yourself in a violent situation. And in fact, a gun in the home is more likely to kill someone that we love rather than to be actually used in chasing off someone that's attacking us. Um, and in fact, even the our ideas about people breaking into our house and the stranger danger, as we called it when I was a kid, you know, are kind of um, actually myths that the person who is likely to violently hurt us or kill us often has a key to our house or is someone that we know rather than this random act of violence or crime. And even in the, the mass shootings and stuff, I think it's important to think about have guns helped or hurt. And, you know, in these mass shootings, overwhelmingly, there's someone that's had access to massive amounts of guns. So, so I, I think we need to have a better conversation around guns. And a starting point is going, even for someone who would choose to have a, a gun for hunting or uh, a handgun in their home, which I don't choose to have, but they might, I think we can still have a really great conversation and going, well, do you think we should have assault weapons? You know, like, and I know a ton of gun owners that believe we should not have assault weapons or why does someone need a silencer for why, what's any good reason someone would have a silencer for a gun? Someone's convicted of domestic violence. Should there be limitations on their access to guns? Mm -hmm. If someone's, you know, on a no fly list, should they maybe be on a no gun list? You know, background check, some of those things. So what's really encouraging is an overwhelming majority of Americans believe we need some common sense changes when it comes to gun laws. But what's also encouraging is a majority of gun owners also believe that we need some major reforms on our, the way that we think about guns in our country. And my hope as a, as a Christian is I think we can talk about the Second Amendment and we, we, can, we should talk about things like that. You know, the fact that when the Second Amendment was written, guns fired one shot a minute, you know, not a hundred. But for Christians, we have a higher authority than the Constitution. That's right. And, and that's Jesus and it's the Bible. And I think that you can look at history and argue reasonably that, that guns or violence have helped us. And you can also look at history and, you know, argue reasonably that guns and violence have actually been hurting us. And in the end, the question for those of us who follow Christ is, are we going to choose a cross or a gun? And can we hold both of them together? And, you know, for the early church and so many others, they said, for Christ, we can die, but we cannot kill. Mm -hmm. and, and Jesus said, you know, greater love is no one than this. We, we can lay down our life for another, but we cannot take a life to try to save a life. We end up mirroring the very violence that we're trying to heal the world of. I do remember reading, maybe it was in Jesus for President, but you told a story about how you were walking around in Philly and uh, a gang started forming behind you and you were with a, a kid, maybe like a 10-year-old kid. Uh, could you tell that story? Yeah. So a young man in, in the neighborhood and I were walking to the post office and there was a group of young people that 
Um, I mean, it kind of started to trickle in. There were just one or two, and then there were a few more, and they they, they were just kind of, uh, I don't know, it was just kind of this little mob mentality. You know, they're picking on us a little bit, and then they kind of surround us, started throwing stuff. And then before I knew it, they, they had picked up a piece of wood, and they hit one of us. And at that point, I just kind of busted out a um, – I don't know, the Pentecostal in me just kind of got, got there. You know, I, I grew up uh, Methodist, but then I got with the Pentecostals. And, you know, you realize there's some principalities and powers in the world. So I, yeah. I looked at these kids and I, they, it just didn't look, feel like I was looking at young people. It felt like there was something else going on. So I just, I just said, in the name of Jesus, get back. I said, you're made for something better than this. Every yeah. one of you is better than this. Yeah. And I, I don't know, like it wasn't like some what happened next superpower I had. Well, I, I just either some demons flew out or I think for the most part, the kids just didn't know what the heck to do with that. They <laughs> kind of scattered, but you know, they didn't come back. And I mean, and another story of that for a young woman that I lived with here was she was a knife was pulled on her, not a gun, but a knife on the train. And she had a real similar experience. She said, the guy said, give me your bag and get off to the next stop. And she said to him, look, I don't know why you'd want my bag. There's nothing in it that you would want. It's got pictures and addresses of my family in Brazil. She said, I, I guess you would want money and I've got $20 in my pocket. So you must need it. So here's what we're going to do. I'll keep my bag. I'll give you $20 and you get off at the next stop, you know, and that's what happened. <laughs> and so I think there is something, you know, as you're talking and we're talking about this, there is something about fear yeah, um, that we need to address. And there, you know, we, we, we really need to go. Those of us, who follow Jesus, like we, we need to live without fear. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we live in a crazy world, stuff's going to happen to us. But that promise of scripture is that love casteth out fear, fear and love are enemies. And we have to choose, you know, who we're going to be in all these. And we don't know what situation is going to rise. You know, people ask me all the time, well, someone, what if someone broke in, was attacking your wife? I don't know how I would act in every situation. But what I hope is that I'm being shaped by Jesus. Uh, whatever situation I find myself in, that I would respond like Jesus would respond, that I would try to respond with love. And it doesn't always come instinctively. So we have to be shaped and formed so that that's who we are. And that's the great work that, you know, Raw Tools and Mike and others have been doing is going, these are spiritual muscles that we need to work out so that when we do encounter violence in this world, and we probably will, that we encounter it in a way that honors Jesus rather than betrays him. Yeah. I always hate how in those hypotheticals, the person posing it presumes atheism. And it's like, I'm sorry, but like, I can't assume there's no God in this scenario. I'm a believer. You know, you, 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 can't, you can't expect me to enter into a totally different worldview and a hypothetical. I mean, I, I do believe that God will make a way of escape you know, and I, I do have a robust theology of martyrdom, and I do believe in resurrection, and I think the Holy Spirit is alive and active and within us as those who, who believe and live this out, and that if we can, on the one hand, break our commitment to cowardice, which would just be totally wimping out in this situation, or like in a home invasion situation, you know, I can run faster than my wife and four kids. So, does that mean I should just jump out the window or run away? You know, that's cowardice. I think we need to break our commitment there, break our commitment on the other hand to violence and to hatred and to that indignation that arises in us. How dare you come into my home? 
and then maybe we can hear God in that moment. I, I don't know. I really find that uh, those stories that you share very inspiring because we're not used to thinking creatively or like a third way. We're just used to, oh, well, unless I get out my gun and blow the guy away, which is, of course, what Jesus would do, right? Uh, no. <laughs> Have you guys ever heard of David Brousseau? He's an author. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You remind me of a couple of stories because he, he writes about this too. He's, he comes from an Anabaptist perspective and uh, he, he writes some stories about there was a serial killer on the, on the loose and some friends of his were in a hotel room and it was Halloween. And uh, the husband knew about these serial killers, but the wife had not heard about the news yet. And she's the one that answered the door. So she just invited him in. And, uh, you know, they, they had these guns and they're like, you know, get on your knees and, and all this. And this is the MO. Like they, they get you on your knees, your hands behind your head. They kill you. They take your stuff and they leave. And for some reason, she just started singing the song, yes, Jesus loves me. And she just started singing it and she wouldn't go on her knees and she was walking towards them instead of in, in fear away from them. And they just freaked out and they ran away. Yeah. You know, and I just love stories like that. So, I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to the uh, person who says, well, I need, I need to trust in this gun to protect me, I'm, I, I want to ask the question too. What's bigger, God or this gun? Mm. You know? Mike, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think we can all, it's really easy for us to get caught up in these big what if scenarios, but trauma can still happen. And there's also beautiful stories on the other side of trauma. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is uh, my friend Charletta Evans, who really kind of introduced me to restorative justice as well. And her three-year-old was shot and killed um, on a random drive-by gang shooting. And she she went out to the car when it happened and carried him as he was breathing his last breaths around the block and, uh, you know, ended up at, at some neighbor's house, as they called 911. And at the hospital that night, she went to the bathroom just to get away from everybody. And she felt like God spoke to her and said, are you going to forgive and are you willing to forgive? And so she talks about it as like this, this question to her from God, but also this suggestion, like, you know, this is, this is kind of the path that Christians go. And the next day, the, the headline in the, in the Denver paper was mother forgives shooters of three-year-old slain three-year-old. And 17 years later, she was the first person in Colorado to go through a high-risk victim offender uh, mediation. And the shooter, she sat down with the shooter, and he had um, agreed. He, he did this when he was 16 years old. Everybody in the car was 16 or younger. So these are young kids just trying to impress a gang. A couple years before this meeting, they sat down. He sent her a Mother's Day card and requested that she play the role of mother in his life. And she didn't respond until they met that day and walked uh, and talked through that. She wanted to hold his hands. And right away, she just, she was afraid for him that he was going to have a heart attack because she could literally see his chest pounding wow. with being in her presence. And so um, at the end of the conference, she answered that question. She said, yes, I'll be your mother. And so at the time he was sentenced to life in prison without the opportunity for parole and since um, she has testified in su the Supreme Court as well as the Colorado um, Supreme Court, but the national one as well, that that's, you can't do that to minors. You can't do that to kids. And so he has an opportunity for parole coming up in a year or two, and she's going to be there advocating for him mm -hmm. to live a life that her son, she, it doesn't do her any good to also have another man's life ruined, not just um, what he did to her son, but 
she believes that he can live a productive life despite what he did to her son. And so she talks with him two, three times a week. She's living forgiveness every day and a great example of what a Jesus follower looks like. And that when bad things happen, that's what turning the other cheek leads us towards is forgiveness. And restorative justice is acted out largely in a public sector and not as much in the church church sector. And yet forgiveness finds its way in to restorative justice, even though it's not a required part of it. But us as Christians, man, do we have a, a huge opportunity to engage our, our neighborhoods today with gun violence and a lot of these other just traumatic confrontations that we keep seeing happening. It's part of what, what we've like been floored in doing this work and traveling around the country is we, we meet so many heroes that have used their pain not to try to perpetuate more pain, but actually to try to heal the wounds of violence. And Charlotte Evans is one of those. And they're just stories like that, that, that inspire us. And we've got a lot of those, you know, in the book, you use the word, Sean, uh, uh, imagination. And I think that's, that's one of our biggest challenges sometimes is imagination. And criminologists actually say that when someone is doing a violent act, our brains are conditioned for one of two responses, fight or flight. Right. So if someone's doing something violent, they're ready for you to confront them or to run from them. And when you do something other than those two, it actually creates an imbalance in your brain and it creates a hiccup. And, and sometimes that space um, allows for, for the magic or the miracles. Not always, but, you know, there's a lot of stories there's a, of how that's happened in violent situations. And, you know, I think that that's exactly what uh, Jesus is trying to show us is a, is a third way, as Walter Wink said so wonderfully, that's neither fight nor flight. It's not cowardice or violence, not uh, passivity or violence, but it, it's showing us that, you know, evil can be opposed without being mirrored and that oppressors can be resisted without being uh, annihilated, right? That we, we can actually transcend violence without becoming it, even in a violent situation. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, guys, I, I so appreciate you taking the time out today. Any uh, concluding thoughts you want to leave us with? Uh, thanks for having us having us on. Uh, you're free to check out rawtools.org. There's a lot of other tangible ways to plug in to become a part of a network that helps people facilitate gun donations if you donate a gun to us, you get a garden tool out of it for free. And then we make more tools out of that gun uh, to help uh, support our work and other organizations that we partner with as well. Um, yeah. Thanks for having us on, Sean. Yeah. Thanks, man. We can, you can also go to, uh, go to rawtools.org and also to beatinggguns.com uh, and you can see a little bit more. And um, the, this idea of uh, beating swords into plows isn't our, our idea. You know, it's an ancient idea from the prophets and, we need people with courage and imagination right now that say, we don't have to accept the status quo. We don't have to, uh, 105 lives a day being lost to guns does not need to be normal. We don't need to just hear thoughts and prayers after a, another mass shooting. Like we actually need to take action right now. And so we, we believe in prayer and we, we also believe in action. And uh, one of my mentors said, uh, Sometimes good things come to those who wait upon the Lord and sometimes good things come to those who get off their knees after prayer and organize and make change happen. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to invite, you know, folks to be people of prayer, but also to be people of action. And we need both in the time we're living in, especially around gun violence. Yeah. Well, that's it for this interview. I have a bunch of links in the show notes for this episode, which you can access either in your device directly 
or by going to restitutio.org, it's restitution with no N, .org, where you can find interview 54, Beating Guns, and look at the links at the bottom. I have a link to rawtools.org, as well as links to the Beating Guns book in print. It's also available in audio format on christianaudio.com, as well as Audible. And other links to previous episodes where we have discussions about this subject in a number of different ways. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the whole issue of gun violence. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation, visit restitudio.org and find episode 54, as I mentioned. On a lighter note, as I mentioned in the intro, I attended a Christian festival last weekend in Ohio called Converge. It was such a wonderful time to meet so many folks from so many backgrounds, including several who are listeners to this show. It was cool to have an opportunity to say hi. Uh, I'm sorry not to be able to spend more time with folks because it was such a jam-packed weekend. But uh, I really did want to say thanks to everyone for coming and to the other organizers who put in so much work. We got a little taste of the kingdom that weekend. Even while the world around us was wrapped in chaos and violence, um, we we got to live in peace with each other. And that's part of the testimony that we have to share uh, with the world. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.